You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Let's get into the study of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your Word today, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has served us. And Lord, we want to give you our attention. We want to give you our devotion. And Lord, we ask that during this time, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, we ask that you speak to us. Help us to hear the message that you have for us. Help us to digest it and put it into practice in our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, do you guys know how to make somebody really mad? If you want to know how to make somebody really dislike you, if that's your goal, let me tell you how to do it. Here's how. You ready? Treat them as if they are your servant, right? If you treat somebody as if they are your slave, as if they only exist to do things for you and fulfill your agenda and, and meet your needs, people will really dislike you. They will not like that at all. You know why? Because nobody likes being treated that way, right? Nobody likes being treated like a slave or like a servant. How many of you have ever uh, complained about your boss? And your complaint is, my boss treats me as if I'm his or her slave, right? They don't ask me to do things. They tell me to do things. They never appreciate anything I do. They just tell me what to do. And there's never any acknowledgement or anything like that. Or how many of you you kids who live at home, you know, mom and dad make you do stuff around the house, and sometimes you say to yourself, what do they think I am, some kind of slave? Or maybe you're a mom or a dad, and you find yourself, you know, chauffeuring kids around, cooking, cleaning, and sometimes you have to tell them, hey, don't forget, I'm not your servant, okay? I'm not your slave. See, nobody likes being treated like a servant. You know why? Because servants don't get to do what they want to do. Servants have to do what other people tell them to do. That's why people like being leaders, right? Because if you're the leader, you set the agenda. You tell other people what to do. But if you're a servant, you have to do what, what your boss or your master tells you to do. And who wants to do that? That's why if you go into the bookstore or if you go on Amazon, you're going to find so many books, guys, so many books on the topic of leadership, how to be a leader, how to lead this way, how to lead that way. There's conferences, there's podcasts, so much information on how to be a leader. But have you ever noticed that there's just not a big market out there for books on how to be a servant? Now, part of the reason for that is because being a servant isn't very complicated. You don't really need a book. It's more of like a pamphlet that's one page and one sentence long. Here's how to be a servant. Do what you're told, right? The end. End of pamphlet, right? Uh, and so on the one hand, it's not that complicated to be a servant, and maybe we don't need books and podcasts about it. But on the other hand, the other reason why there's probably not a lot out there is because there's not a big market for it because it's just not that popular. Not a lot of people lining up and saying, you know what I want to do with my life? I want to be somebody else's servant. And yet we have Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is considered widely to be the greatest person who ever lived. I mean, think about it. We divide all of history based on before him and after him. He is the baseline for how we tell time and how we tell history. The entire world, even places where people, uh, for the most part, are not Christians, will pause this week 
to celebrate and commemorate the birth of this man into the world. So I think we could say that more songs have been sung about him than anyone else who's ever lived. More books, more ink has been spilled about this one man than anyone else who's ever lived. We can say that this is the greatest person who ever lived. And here's what he had to say about himself. He said, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And he taught his disciples that true greatness is not found in exercising authority and lording over other people. No, he said true greatness is found in becoming a servant, becoming the servant of others. And that's really interesting. And, and I would say this, if you think about it, that probably resonates with you on some level. On some level, you hear that and you say, you know what? That's true. That is true greatness, to serve other people. Because if you've ever had a boss or a teacher or a public official of some kind or someone who's had some authority and they use their power to help other people rather than to serve themselves, those are the people that we really look up to. Those are the people we really respect and love and, and, and yeah, and give our devotion to. Now, I think that many of us, perhaps most of us, would be willing to serve other people. We say, hey, I am willing to serve others. But here's the caveat. As long as it's on my terms. I'm willing to serve other people as long as it's how I want to do it and when I want to do it and the way I want to do it. So as long as it's on my terms, I would be happy to serve other people. But here's the thing I want you to think about. If you want to know how much of a servant you really are, here's the test. Notice how you respond when people treat you like one, when people treat you like a servant. How do you respond? Do you love it, right? Like, if you want to know how much of a servant you really are, because I think many of us would say, you know, I like to think of myself as a servant-hearted person. But the real test of how much of a servant I actually am in reality is how I respond when somebody treats me like a servant, when someone asks me to do something that I don't want to do or something that maybe I feel is beneath me. In the group of churches that Whitefields is affiliated with, which is called Calvary Chapel, uh, we have a kind of unwritten tradition in our, in our churches. And here's the tradition. If somebody applies to work at one of our churches and they get hired on as a pastor, before they will ever be allowed to teach a Bible study or lead a group, they will be given a job. And that job is to clean the toilets. They will be handed a plunger and a brush, and they will be handed a you know, trash can on wheels, and they will be given the job of doing the janitorial duties. Now, a lot of people, as you might imagine, aren't that thrilled with that when it happens, right? They're surprised, and they don't like it, because after all, they went to seminary. Guys, they went to Bible college. They learned to read the biblical languages. They learned how to read ancient Greek. And they didn't go to school for all those years and train for ministry so they could be a janitor and take out the trash and clean the toilets. Anybody can do that. Why should they do something like that? And they say, what is this? But the reason we do this in our churches is here's why. Because the essence of being a minister of the gospel is serving people. And if you are not willing to be a servant 
in any capacity that's needed, if you're not willing to serve people in practical ways, then you are not ready to be a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. Now listen, there, I had a case like this myself a few years ago, several years ago now, where a guy came to me and he uh, had a degree in theology. And he asked me, what opportunities are there for me to serve in this church? And I said, I've got a great opportunity for you. We need help on our setup team. You can join our setup team. That is where we need help. That's where you can serve. And he was so offended. He was so offended that he left the church. He told me, anybody can stack chairs, but me, I've got knowledge about the Bible that other people don't have. And like I said, he actually left. And I noticed that he wasn't here, so I gave him a call a few weeks later, and I said, hey, you know, when we were talking the other day, and you asked me if there were any opportunities to serve. And I told you, yeah, you should join the setup team. That was a test. Here's, it was a test, and here's why. I wanted to see if you really wanted to serve people. Because if you want to serve people, there was an opportunity. If you're in this to serve people, then good. But if you're not, then you're not ready to lead in any other way either. Because as Christians, listen, our model is a man who, even though he knew more about God than anybody else who has ever lived, he called himself, he identified himself as a servant. We follow Jesus, the man who on the night before he was crucified, he wrapped a towel around his waist and he knelt down and he washed his disciples' dirty, sweaty feet. That was the job of a servant, but they didn't have a servant there at that last supper. And so none of the disciples were willing to do that job. You know why? Because they all felt that this is beneath me. I'm better than this. I'm a big deal. But Jesus, he got down on his hands and his knees. He took the role of a servant. And I told this, this friend, I said, you know, if you're not willing to serve like Jesus served, then you're not ready to be a leader in Jesus's church. And this, this man ended up actually coming back uh, to the church. And a few years later, he told me that that conversation was the number one thing that God used in his life to help him grow as a disciple of Jesus. But here's the thing. We tend to love the fact that we tend to love this aspect of who Jesus is, that he was a servant. We tend to honor that and say, wow, that is great that he was a servant. But here's what you need to know. When Jesus was alive, this is something that very much confused people. It caused them a lot of consternation. They didn't get it, and they didn't really like it that Jesus kept talking about himself as a servant, including Jesus' own disciples. Because in their mind, Jesus was supposed to be a king, a ruler, uh, the kind of person who rules over other people. And the thing about kings and rulers is that they have servants. They aren't servants themselves. And so in our study today, we're going to be looking at this. Why did people expect Jesus to be a king? And why did nobody seem to get it? this aspect of Jesus describing himself as a servant. Where did this idea come from? Is this a kind of a, a twist that Jesus put on to the, the idea of being the Messiah? Is this something he added in when he came? Or is this something that was integral to God's promise of who the promised Savior, the Messiah, would be? That's what we're going to talk about. For the, for the season of Advent right now, for the four weeks leading up to Christmas, which today's the last Sunday in Advent, we have been doing a series called The Promise of a Savior. 
And in this series, what we've been doing is we're taking a journey through the Bible, looking at some of the promises that God made throughout history, leading up to the coming of Jesus on the very first Christmas. And today, as we continue this journey, here's what we're going to see. Here's our sentence for today. Every week, I give you a sentence that sums up the core message of this passage and then the sermon today. And it's a great gospel truth for you to take away. So I want to encourage you, write this down, memorize it, take a photo of it, whatever you got to do. This is what we'll be talking about today, and it'll be our outline by which we study uh, our passage. The promised Savior would be a victorious king who conquers through his sacrificial death to set us free from our greatest enemy. Okay, we're going to take that sentence, and we're going to break it down as we study our text. Let's look at the first part. The promised Savior would be a victorious king. Imagine if you were on an airplane and the flight attendant came down the aisle and she started telling people, hey, everybody, good news. Today's your lucky day. We've got parachutes for anybody who wants one. Who wants to wear a parachute? Free parachutes today only for everybody on the plane. It is our gift to you. Totally complimentary. Now, who wants a parachute? Put your hand in the air. How many people do you think would actually put their hand in the air and ask for a parachute. Now, parachutes are pretty cool, but the problem with wearing a parachute is it's kind of bulky, and if you've ever ridden on an airplane, you know that the seats aren't uh, very big. And so you're already cramped on an airplane. Who would want, in their right mind, to do something that would make you feel even more cramped? So my guess is if the flight attendant comes down and asks people, hey, who wants to volunteer to wear a parachute, probably almost nobody is going to take, uh, take them up on it. But what if instead the flight attendant gets on the loudspeaker and this is what the flight attendant says instead. They say, hi, everybody. We've got some unfortunate news for you today. Our plane has suffered a catastrophic mechanical failure and we are going to crash. But good news, we have enough parachutes for everybody to have one and we're going to come down the aisle. And if you want one, let us know and we will give you one. Well, now the way that you think about those parachutes is totally different. No longer would you see that parachute as an annoyance or an unnecessary addition, a bulky thing which adds discomfort to your life. No, now you would see that parachute as a treasure, as a lifeline. And you know what? You wouldn't care if it made your seat feel a little bit tighter because you know what? You're not going to be on this plane for very long anyway, right? You would love that parachute. It would be your treasure. You would put it on. You would cling to it. You would be so glad that you have it because it is your lifeline. It is going to save you so that you can see your loved ones again, so that you can have days to enjoy life and, and, and have prolonged days and years to come. Now listen, in both cases, you were offered the same parachute. But the way that you feel about that parachute, the way you respond to that parachute changes depending on how you understand the reality of your situation. And the same thing is true about Christmas. Do you know that? The same thing is true about Christmas. It, in order for you to really appreciate that Christmas is good news that brings great joy to all people, you have to understand why it is that Jesus had to come. And what we've seen in our series as we've been going through this for the last couple of weeks is that the reason Jesus needed to come is because our lives and this world we live in are essentially just like an airplane that has suffered a catastrophic mechanical failure. But the good news of the gospel 
is that God has provided a way for us to be saved. And that way is through a person. And you know what the Bible is? The Bible is the story of that person, the promised Savior who God would send to save us from the curse of sin and death. And the Bible records how throughout history there has been this progressive revelation where God, over time, has given a little bit more information at different times about who this promised Savior would be, how we would recognize him when he came, what he would do when he appeared. And in our study last week, we saw how God revealed one thing about this Savior is that he would be a promised king. He would be a king who would be descended from King David, and he would restore the throne of Israel. So when Jesus came on the scene and news began to spread that he was a descendant of King David, that he was a rightful heir to the throne of Israel, people got really excited. And they got really excited when he started traveling around and talking about the kingdom that he was going to establish. They thought, this is it. This is the fulfillment of everything that God promised to send us a king, a savior. And at the time that, that Jesus was born, know this, Israel was an occupied and oppressed country. The Roman Empire had come in and they had taken the leaders of Israel and they had murdered them. They literally threw them off a cliff at a place called Mount Arbel and they inserted instead their own leader and a puppet government and they stole the land of Israel and they oppressed the people. Under the Roman leadership, the Jewish people were not able to practice their every aspect of their religion. And if they ever spoke up, that was put, it was quelled very quickly by killing people, right? They, they were oppressed. They were taxed. And their tax dollars went to what? To supporting this corrupt pagan government that was oppressing them. The Roman Empire had come in, had stolen their land, and taken the best parts of it for themselves. And the cry of the Jewish people at this time was, how long, O Lord? How long will you let this injustice go on? How long will you allow us to suffer under this tyrannical, pagan, terrible government? How long will you make us wait until you send us the Savior, the King, who will reestablish Israel as a great nation and reestablish the throne of David, where instead of being ruled over by other nations, Israel will take its rightful place on the world stage and Israel will rule the nations? So when Jesus started traveling around and talking about the kingdom of God that he was going to establish, people got really excited. They gathered around to hear him speak. But then when they heard him speak, he said some things which, which really perplexed them. He said some things which were not at all what they expected him to hear. Rather than giving speeches about the need for Israeli independence, rather than giving speeches for the need for them to rise up and, and cast off the oppressors, Jesus said things like this. Love your enemies. Who are their enemies? Well, the Romans. Bless those who persecute you. Who was persecuting them? The Romans. He talked about forgiving those who hurt you. He said, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Rather than talking about how God was going to judge those despicable Romans, Jesus talked about how all of us are one day going to stand before God one day and give an account for the things that we've done. He said things like this. He said, if, if a Roman soldier, for example, compels you to carry their backpack for a mile, you should carry it for two miles. If they come to you and they say, give me your coat off your back, don't just give them your coat. Give them your shirt off your back as well. 
And this was totally perplexing to people. And they were wondering, well, whose side is this guy even on? And, and this was including Jesus' disciples. They were perplexed by this. But everybody was said, hey, look, I'm sure these are just things that we need to hear. So we'll listen. We'll, we'll take them to heart. But we know that one day Jesus will stop talking and he'll start acting. And he will lead us to Jerusalem, and he will overthrow the Romans, and he will establish the throne of David. So they waited. And in Matthew chapter 16, the passage that I asked you to open up to at the beginning, here's what we read. We read about a time when Jesus was with his disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi. This is in the far north of Israel, in the place that you might have heard of. It's called the Golan Heights nowadays, is what we call it. If you come with us to Israel, we visit this place. It's actually the headwaters of the Jordan River. So Jesus is with his disciples in this place, Caesarea Philippi. And he starts talking with them, and he says, you know, who, who do people say that I am? And they say, oh, you know, they say you're this, they say you're that. And then Jesus says, okay, but who do you believe that I am? And Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, spoke up and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, last week we talked about how this phrase, son of God, is a title that was given to the kings of Israel. So what is Peter saying here when he says, you are the Christ, that's the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter's saying, I believe that you are the promised savior, the king who God promised to send to reestablish the throne of David forever. And Jesus said, Peter, that's exactly right. That is exactly who I am. But then, a few minutes later, read, read what happened next. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, verse 22, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. Peter literally pulled Jesus aside and told him to cut it out with all this stuff about suffering and dying. After all, he's supposed to be a conquering king who will rule forever. You can't rule forever if you're dead. Jesus was supposed to overthrow the Romans, not be killed by the Romans. But look at how Jesus responded in verse 23. But he turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In verse 26, he said this, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? Look at what Jesus is telling his disciples. He's telling them, I have come to do something bigger and better than to just fix your political situation and give you a good government. After all, listen, if Jesus was to overthrow the Romans and, and establish a good government in Israel, would that solve all of their problems? Of course not. And you know what else? It would only help them in this life. Jesus says, it wouldn't do anything for your soul. And so the disciples listened, and they said, all right, all right, all right. And then a little while later, Jesus led them, and they went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. 
Now, when the crowds of people heard that Jesus, this one who was descended from King David, was coming up to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, they thought, this is it. He, he's done a lot of talking for three years. He's done some other stuff, but now's the time. This is the big event. He's coming up to Jerusalem, and he's going to lead us in a revolt. He's going to call out the Romans, and he's going to overthrow them. You see, the thing about Jerusalem, here's what you need to know. There were two great buildings on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. On the one hand, there was the temple, but there was another building on the Temple Mount. It was called the Antonia Fortress. And the Antonia Fortress was the head of the Roman occupying force in Israel. It was there in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount next to the temple. And so here's what happened. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And the people said, here he is. He's announcing himself to be king. And he was, by the way. And, and so Jesus comes in and the people welcome him as king. They lay down a red carpet of sorts out of palm branches. This is what we call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. And they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. In other words, the promised king. And they say, Hosanna, which means save us now. Save us now. But much to the people's surprise, as Jesus came into Jerusalem, rather than taking a turn in the one direction to lead them up to the Antonia Fortress to call out the Romans, he turned his donkey in the other direction, and he went to the temple. And instead of overthrowing the Romans, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the people who were ripping people off who had come to worship in the temple. And that really upset people. Once again, they wondered, whose side is this guy on? Who did this guy come to, to lead us against, right? And many of those same people, understand this, many of those same people who on Palm Sunday had shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the son of David. Many of those same people joined a different chant on Friday, on Good Friday. And instead of saying, Hosanna, blessed is the son of David, they shouted, crucify him crucify him. They turned their backs on Jesus. You know why? Because they concluded, well, he must not be the one we were waiting for. He must not be the promised Savior King because he didn't liberate us from the Romans. And it makes you wonder, if we have all these prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about how the promised Savior would be a king and a ruler, then where did Jesus get all this stuff about being a servant? Where did Jesus get all this stuff about suffering and dying for the people? Was that just a new twist that he added in? Was it something that he came up with on his own? Or had God actually said something about this and the people had failed to realize it? Well, well, of course that was the case. And let's talk about that as we move on to the second part of our sentence for today, which is this. The promised Savior would be a victorious king who conquers through his sacrificial death. The Jewish people at the time of Jesus were so focused on their desire for a political Savior and a political solution to their problems that they were ignoring one of the most important prophecies about the promised Savior that God had given them. You see, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah had spoken. He dedicated 10 chapters to speaking about a person whom he called the servant, 
the servant. Now, the servant passages, I encourage you, write these down. Take notes of them. Read them later. These are the servant passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50 and 51, 52, and culminating in chapter 53. I want to read to you some of the passages from these servant passages in the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 42, he says this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Chapter 49, I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Chapter 51, this, he says that the servant will bring about righteousness that will last forever, and salvation to all generations. Eternal salvation. And then in chapter 53, all of this talk about the servant culminates. And God says the servant will come, and everything he does will lead up to one great act of service. And here's what it is. Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53, verse 3, He will be despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Verse 4, He will bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. He will be smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, he will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. And upon him will be the chastisement that brings us peace. And by his wounds, we will be healed. Because, verse 6, we have all gone astray like sheep. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, Isaiah says, this servant, his soul will be given as an offering or a sacrifice for our guilt. And verse 12, we're told that the soul of the servant will be poured out to death and that in his death, he will bear the sins of many people. The, the Jewish people struggled to understand who this servant was going to be. In some ways, it sounded a lot like Isaiah was describing the same king who had been promised to David, who had established the throne of Israel forever. But there, and then there was all this stuff about him suffering and dying for the sins of the people. How can you be an eternal king if you die? And the conclusion that many Jewish people came to was, they said, this must be talking about some other person because it couldn't possibly be talking about the victorious king whom God had promised to send. But for the most part, you know what they did? They ignored these passages. They ignored these prophecies. Why? Because they just didn't fit. They didn't make sense to them according to their expectations of what they needed and what they thought God was going to do for them. But here's what's interesting. When Jesus came, Jesus identified himself not only as a servant, Jesus identified himself as the servant who Isaiah had spoken about. Look again at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man, now we talked about that last week, the Son of Man is a messianic title. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a price that you pay to set someone free. And Jesus is making reference to Isaiah chapter 53 by saying that he will give his life in order to set other people free. And you know what's interesting? 
If you look at the book of Acts and you look at the, the sermons that Peter taught after Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, if you look at Peter's letters that he wrote to the church after this, Peter refers more than any of the other apostles or disciples. He refers to Jesus as the servant and he quotes from the servant passages in the book of Isaiah. Peter the one who told Jesus to cut it out with all this stuff about serving and dying. Peter, he sees it, and now he gets it. Jesus is the servant who Isaiah spoke about, and that brings us to the last part of our sentence. The promised Savior would be a victorious king who conquers through his sacrificial death to set us free from our greatest enemy. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? What does it benefit a person if you gain the whole world and yet lose your own soul? Friends, the, the greatest enemy that we face, Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians 15, the final enemy, the greatest enemy is death. And what makes death so serious, the Bible says, is that death is not just the end of your physical life here on earth, but there is a spiritual component to death. When your body stops living, that is not the end of you. You have a soul Jesus says, a soul that will live forever. So death is not just a physical state. Death is a spiritual condition. And spiritual death is the judgment of being cut off and separated from God forever. Listen, if God is the source of everything that is good and true and beautiful and right, everything that makes life worth living, then to be separated from God for all eternity is exactly what we would call hell. But the good news of the gospel is this. In Romans chapter 4, we're told that Jesus Christ, our Lord, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. Jesus is the victorious king who came to save us, but the way he saves us is by giving his life for us. The ultimate act of sacrifice, the ultimate act of love, Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, verse 13, he said, greater love has no one than this, than that someone would give his life for his friends. And that is what Jesus has done for us. Listen, there is no greater love than the love that God has for you. And that is why God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ to do for us what you could never do for yourself to save you from your greatest enemy, to save you from death and judgment and separation from God, to take the judgment that you deserved in your place. That's the kind of king that we follow. You know, many kings who come, they would show their greatness and their power by coming and destroying their enemy, vanquishing their enemies. But the message of the gospel is that Jesus, our king, has come. And rather than destroying us who made ourselves enemies of God through our rebellion and our sin, he has come to us and he has laid down his life for us in order to make rebels and enemies like us into friends and family because he loves you. Guys, how do we respond to that kind of amazing grace? How can we respond to what God has done for us by serving us and dying in our place? You know, here at, here at the church, we have a staff, and, and on our staff, we kind of have a, a joke between some of our staff members. So if one staff member asks another staff member to do something that they don't particularly want to do, we'll respond by saying, as you wish. 
as you wish. Now, that's a reference to a movie. Some of you might know that. The movie is The Princess Bride. Now, in The Princess Bride, let me explain. The princess falls in love with a servant boy. That's the story. The princess falls in love with a servant boy. And it says that the princess used to always boss around the servant boy. She used to tell him, hey, servant boy, get me some water. Hey, servant boy, do this, do that. And the servant boy, it says, would only respond ever. He would only say one thing, as you wish. And it says that one day she realized that every time he said, as you wish, what he really meant was, I love you. And so uh, that is what we do on our staff, right? If somebody says to you uh, to do something and you respond by saying, as you wish, what it means is, I do not want to do this, but I will do it because I love you. Now, guys, that is super cheesy. But you know what else? It's also absolutely true. Jesus, the ultimate servant, he served you with his life and with his death because he loves you. And how do you respond to that love? Here's how. By saying to him in response, in every area of my life, as you wish. As you wish in every area of your life. That's what it means to make him your Lord. By embracing him as your Savior. And then you worship him by surrendering your life, surrendering your will, surrendering your agenda to him. And you decide that you are going to serve this Jesus who served you with his life. And when it comes to how you spend your time, what you do in your relationships, what you do with your finances, and in every area of your life, I want to encourage you to see his love for you and what he has done for you and respond to him by saying in every area of your life, as you wish. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.